0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to Hear Here, my audiobook podcast. I'm Dan Masterton, and I'm reading to you from my second fiction story, Abundance, Not Scarcity. If you'd like to get a paperback copy of the book, or if you'd like a free copy of this story as an ebook optimized for iPhone or iPad, visit my Linktree at linktr.ee Dan Masterton. That's l i n k t r.ee Dan Masterton. There's links there to all my writing including the link to the paperback order form, as well as a link to the Google Drive folder with free ebook versions of both of my fiction stories. My previous story, What There Is To Be Done, is also available in this podcast feed. Just hop back to season one. I'd love to hear your thoughts and feedback about these stories. Find me on Twitter at ThisLadDan, or email me at dmastert at alumni.nd.edu. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this chapter, And stick around at the end for a bonus reflection. May we all identify and come to understand God's ongoing invitations for us. Cheers. All right, that's it for the Priest-Prophet Kings. Let's hear from the Lost Tribes of Israel next, and then we'll move on to the uh, Seven Seals and the Diaspora last, Father Ambrose said. Let's start with, you there. Is it, Noah? The man hosting at the front looked down from a list on a sheet of paper, and then up across the room to a young man, and then back at his list. The young man decided he ought to reply, rather than pretend the uncertain question wasn't directed at him. That's me, Noah replied. He sighed a bit, not necessarily flustered, just trying to stomach the rigmarole. Noah had been looking off toward the corner of his room. He was making minimal eye contact with the MC, who clearly remembered him, at least a smidge, and staring away from the others seated at this table. No matter how many times he had been part of a large group icebreaker, he still loathed it a bit, even if intellectually he understood the value of doing it. He wasn't trying to be cavalier or shy, he just needed the pressure of the moment to click him into gear. He leaned his shoulders forward a bit so that he could scooch his folding chair away from the folding table where he was sitting, and stood up. Hi everyone, he started, not quite wry, but more flat than enthusiastic. I'm Noah. I graduated nine years ago, and I haven't been involved in much of anything since then. I really enjoyed my time at the school, but it just didn't occur to me to stay in the loop. I work in insurance now, but was glad to take a few days off and come out here with you all. Noah finished. There was perhaps more to say, but that thumbnail would suffice for the moment. He had traveled from northern Ohio to central Kentucky joining a group of alumni from his junior high and high school, Cistercian Academy. Noah had spent eight years in the all-male school, following the direction of Cistercian brothers and priests and a staff of lay collaborators. The school was strict, disciplined, firm, but not cold. The expectations were clear and high, and the families and students who came to CA were seeking that and striving to live up to it. After graduating, Noah went to Chicago for college at DePaul University, and displaced the provincial din of life at Cistercian with the buzz of city just by moving a few hundred miles west. Each class at CA had a form master who walked with the students, following them from grade to grade all the way to graduation. Noah remembered his old form master, Father Chrysogonus, fondly. Noah was neither a star student nor a troublemaker. He lived in the middle of the curve. Father C. often spent extra time on certain students extra mentoring for the top students, as well as bonus time putting the troublemakers back on the straight and narrow. A bit like the loaves and fishes, Father C. somehow had enough time to care also for these boys who fell into neither extreme. He had a relaxed, gentle disposition with this group, nudging and encouraging them, but knowing he'd rarely have to scold them either. Noah remembered one day after school when he was hanging out in the gym. He and a few of the other nondescript, middle-achieving guys found a basketball and were playing horse. Father C. passed by the door, saw them through the window, and popped inside. He held up his hand as if to wordlessly say, pass me the ball, so Noah sent him a bounce pass. Father C. adeptly dribbled to the free throw line with the ball. He took a few more dribbles, bounced on his slightly bent knees, and raised the ball to get ready to shoot. Then he closed his eyes. He let out a sharp exhale. Then he drained a free throw, blind. All right, there you go. Set shot, free throw line, eyes closed, Cistercian habit on, Father C. said, smiling, letting the ball clatter to the ground. The boys held their places, stunned frozen by the icy move. Later, fellas. The monks really formed Noah. At school, he gained a strong sense of being prayerful and attentive to his own heart and his own faith, and then turning outward to seek opportunities to serve others. His theology classes and field trips helped cultivate a steady desire to learn more about society understand how people relate, and respond to needs and injustices with acts of service and advocacy. He particularly enjoyed his senior year theology elective on prayer and spirituality, not because he fancied himself a mystic, but because Father C., who taught that course, had a knack for teaching the content. Noah remembered learning mantras and centering prayer, the directions for Liturgy of the Hours, and pieties like the Divine Mercy Chaplet, and particularly enjoyed the Ignatian prayer practice with Scripture, that invited you to place yourself in the story. However, Noah felt like C.A. was so heavily focused on prayer and study that, besides an occasional outing to serve at a food pantry or to deliver collected items to a charity, he barely got any exposure to the larger community. Moving to Chicago challenged him to build up and out from that foundation. At times, his love of city living crowded out these deeper desires, which never zeroed out but got marginalized. The ease of public transit and the extent of entertainment, arts, and leisure all around him got more and more of his time, which wasn't the worst thing. He used his general education requirements to sample some interesting coursework in anthropology, sociology, psychology, and political science, and his mind and heart felt drawn strongly to the social sciences. He even got a taste of peace studies, taking a new look at history and contemporary events through a lens of nonviolence and diplomacy. It was also exciting that he snoozed too long on honing in for a major. Ultimately, the smoothest path to finish in four years was to major in sociology, which was fine, but it did leave him with a bit of unfed hunger to study more about politics and peace. Halfway there, Father Ambrose noted, back in the present moment, Noah's group had finished their introductions. The MC was moving on to the next table's worth of guys. Noah's brief comment was an intentional tip of the iceberg. He wasn't one to overshare, especially right out of shoot. Father Ambrose prompted each of the remaining guests to take their turn. Four groups of five young to middle-aged men each took their turn. Then the monk, who was fairly old in raw age but looked and acted much younger, laid out the directions for their theological trivia icebreaker that would get the retreat going. He wanted an easy way for people to dip their toes in the retreat waters and get to socialize a bit before diving into the deep end. Father Ambrose, the former headmaster of Cistercian, had retired a few years ago. After taking some time away from his years of demanding full-time work, he had stepped into an ambassadorial role, trying to network with alumni and re-engage them in the things they had practiced while they were students at the academy. Father Ambrose's first gamut that fall was to send some emails and letters to the last 25 years' worth of alumni, and he found in the replies that came back to him a hunger for a retreat. As a common observant Cistercian, he reached out to some brothers of the Order of Cistercians of the Strict Observance, the so-called Trappist Monks, or OCSOs, at the Abbey of Gethsemane in Kentucky, to see if he might be able to schedule a trip. The guest master there arranged lodging for 25 men and space for their meetings. Thus, Father Ambrose set to making personal invites for a January weekend, and he managed to fill all those spots. Noah had replied to the initial salvo from Father Ambrose. He expressed a generic appreciation and gratitude for his experience at the academy, without knowing Father Ambrose himself much. At various points along his eight years, the monks had encouraged Noah and his classmates to specifically think and pray about religious life, especially as Cistercian monks. Of course, none of them actually went on to become monks, but Noah couldn't help but give it an honest thought each time it came up. In his mind and heart, it was never a, no way, but rather an, I don't think so and somehow, new monks continued to refill the ranks at the academy anyway. In Chicago as a college student, Noah made it out to service sites now and then, and he was particularly drawn to the work that Catholic Charities was doing in the city. They staffed soup kitchens, did social work and case management, and especially stepped up to support people in migration, particularly asylum seekers, as they sought to get settled in Chicago. He became familiar with many brothers, sisters, and priests who worked with lay staffs to receive and settle these young men and women. Seeing their diverse skills, their profound compassion, and their living faith inspired Noah. He loved the times he made it out to help them clean and prep, to travel to their community homes to help around the house, and especially when he got to help the young people preparing for work or school. Noah often wished he could buckle himself down to go to their sites more regularly, but he just couldn't tear down the mental block against committing to it. As his last semester of college began, Noah caught just the right break. His sociology plan of study was on track he would complete a B.A. in sociology. He might even earn cum laude graduation honors. However, he didn't want to go get a master's in social work and had little to no clue as to how he'd synthesize his interests and studies. That's when a kind religious sister who knew him a bit from his hours around the sites and tipped him off. Catholic Charities of the Rio Grande Valley was assembling a pilot project for a postgrad service corps. They needed four fresh postgrads who were willing to be the guinea pigs. Taking a small stipend, basic benefits, and simple living, and then seeing what they could do in a year. With the bit she knew of Noah's background and willingness to help however he could, she was happy to refer him. Nine months later, Noah hopped a plane from Cleveland to Chicago to Laredo, Texas, where a kind volunteer met him in a rickety white van and brought him the last 150 miles to his new home base in Brownsville. It was immediately clear that there was a great need for extra pairs of hands and whatever structure the Catholic Charities staff may have imagined for these first four volunteers evaporated quickly. Noah's housemate Michelle didn't study education as an undergrad, but she had thought about seeking out a job in a Catholic school or maybe pursuing a master's in education. Michelle was quickly staffed into a nearby parochial school and spread across in-house subbing, auxiliary supervisions, and coaching and moderating after-school activities. Their other housemates, Francis and Claire, were twin siblings. Francis had an eye on law school and the bar down the road, and he was all too excited to dive into the office. There, he was sometimes just making copies, and other times liaising with attorneys and paralegals accompanying people through the immigration legal system. Claire had thought about nursing, if she could get some more prerequisite courses done, or maybe working in child care. She was scooped up by the emergency shelter that was always bringing people in and sending people on. Noah never quite had such a defined role as his colleagues, but he was okay with that. He felt like the personification of the the wherever-there's-the-greatest-need box that one might see in an online donation portal. Noah was a driver, manual laborer, IT guy, landscaper, administrative assistant, and even a sacristan when their parish's part-time staff member moved away. If Noah had more time to think that year, he might have wondered if he was becoming a jack-of-all-trades but master of none. However, he was the good kind of busy. He was usually engaged with people and tasks that left him tired but not bored, nearly emptied of energy but speedily refilled in turn. Luckily, two-thirds of the way through their volunteer year, the assistant to the executive director agitated for the volunteers to get a real break, more than the three days they had all took around Christmas. The leadership set aside the weekend of Palm Sunday for the volunteers to finally get some formation and rest. They borrowed the same van that first conveyed Noah to their service site and headed out of town, to a disused but beautiful retreat center up the Texas coast toward Corpus Christi. While the facilities there had fallen into some disrepair, the waterfront views more than made up for it, and at minimum provided a welcome change of pace to four weary souls. Some religious sisters had turned it over to the diocese, and while the bishop and his staff worked on figuring out what to do with it, a kind middle-aged man named Paul, had agreed to steward it for free room and board. He was a widower with grown children and had semi-retired from retreat ministry with teenagers and young adults. Paul was delighted for the mild diversion from groundskeeping. He happily played host for the group, setting up a simple program to help them reflect. They called ahead when they were close, and Paul walked through the late evening twilight to open the gate. A flickering streetlight at the turnoff from the main road intermittently illuminated a sign. There beside the now swinging open chain-link fence gate, it read, Whispering winds, why are you here? You're here because God wants you here. Paul mostly stayed out of the way, leaving them to cook, eat, and pray together, to sleep, walk, and recreate on their own. He just asked that they share an evening prayer and conference with him. So on those two nights there, they read through the Liturgy of the Hours together and then welcomed Paul's interview debriefing them about what they'd seen and felt. Come Sunday morning, they had to pack up to return for work on Monday. For Palm Sunday, a local retired priest who often visited the center celebrated a simple mass. Afterward, as they started to say goodbye, Paul asked them to sit in the chapel for one last moment. Paul talked about discernment and vocation, about God's ongoing invitations for all of us. He encouraged them to discern from places of abundance, not scarcity to look to the small consolations as bits that add up to the decisive sum. Paul challenged them not to make negative decisions, not to fixate on what they didn't feel called to do. And then he finished with this. Your vocation is not one thing that arrives at one time and gives you one chance. God is simply inviting you to be and become who God made you to be and become, and that is an ongoing invitation. Your vocation is not a train that leaves a station without you. Rather, it's the tracks you keep laying, the coal you keep throwing in the chamber, and the navigation forward you strive to identify. Noah had paraphrased this in his memory, but wished he had a recording or transcription of this transcendent sort of moment. He always remembered hopping in the car and wondering if the retreat weekend was a mirage, some kind of fleeting oasis that looked like it quenched thirst but wasn't actually there. Before much, if any, of the truth bombs Paul lobbed had sunk in significantly, Michelle shifted the car into park and killed the engine. They were already back in Brownsville. They needed to unload their stuff and decamp once again to their volunteer house. Work awaited once again. In a way, Father Ambrose's first message to the alumni, as he laid the groundwork for this retreat, felt like the chance to make the next turn on a trail that Noah had previously abandoned. Noah's choice to reply with a lukewarm message was his all-too-typical way of saying neither yes or no. But then the kind monk's personal follow-up invitation to visit an abbey in Kentucky volleyed the ball back into Noah's court. This forced Noah from ambivalence and prompted him to make a more active choice. Remembering Paul's words, Noah knew there was always another chance to pick the baton of discernment back up. Now almost five years removed from that paschal retreat, and four plus years into a job he didn't want to be a career, Noah somehow decided, at least partially, this was the time to do something, and conjured up a rare but fairly clear yes to Father Ambrose. When Noah left Southern Texas, there wasn't an exact job for him to continue into, but there was a clear desire in his heart. He loved the people, but not the distance from home. He loved the work, but not the bone crushing grind. He loved the justice but not the immersive commitment. At a certain point, 10 months in, the clock simply ran out on his placement. Noah turned and went home because that was the next thing to do, and when one of his father's business contacts gave Noah and his dad the hard sell on a job in insurance, Noah once again said neither yes nor no. An idea became a reality more abruptly than he realized, and Noah wound up donning a shirt and tie for his first day as a claims assistant. Before the deep tan of a year in Texas had even really faded from his pale white skin. He soon became a claims adjuster, and over time, Noah saw upward mobility and even greater compensation and stability in one day reaching management or getting into sales. And each time he entertained the thoughts of further investing himself in that arc, Noah would sarcastically remind himself that he didn't even want to be in insurance. He imagined that if he could redirect himself with more conviction, he might be able to break this cycle. The whole equation left him idling, teetering on some leveled off disequilibrium. At least on this occasion of a random email exchange in late fall, Noah had the chops to pin himself down to some sort of yes. This mild moment of decision included making his request for January vacation days and starting a packing list for a long weekend at a monastery. Now it was a Friday evening in January. Noah had been granted vacation time and took it. He declined the group travel option and opted to drive himself the six hours or so to the abbey. As he set cruise control on the interstate at a healthy long-haul clip, little thoughts popped in and out of his head. What are cloistered Cistercians like? Will I know anyone in the group? Maybe better if I don't? What would Father Chrysognus think if he saw me there? Am I so unsure about what to do with my life that I don't even know how to wonder what to do with my life? The drive, the move-in, and the icebreaker to start the retreat all bled together into one as Noah lagged in acclimating. The group had just finished their little trivia game, and Team Diaspora took home the candy prize. Father Ambrose shuffled them on to a light dinner that had been prepared by a couple volunteers from their group in the communal guest kitchen. Once everyone filled their plates and sat back down together, the monk oriented them a bit to the abbey. So here we are at Gethsemane, Across the street from the cloisters and chapel, and our lodging in the guest wing. We'll grab our bags and head over there shortly to visit our rooms and drop our luggage before we join Compline. The monks join for prayer eight times a day, the last of which is Compline, and you are all welcome to join them for any and all of these. The choirmaster will sit at the organ while the men take their stalls and choir. This refers to the layout in which the men are facing each other on two sides of the chapel. The chants are simple and steady alternating one side to the other, with parts sung together. Listen closely, sing quietly, you'll get the hang of it. We and other guests have a seating area in a loft, as well as in the rear of the chapel behind the cloister rail. Guests are welcome to come forward into the cloistered area after Compline when the abbot invites us forward for a blessing, so keep an eye out for that signal tonight. The prayers then resume tomorrow morning before dawn, when vigils begin at 3.15 a.m. I won't be taking attendance, but consider giving it a try before you go. There's nothing like it, Father Ambrose encouraged. He knew he was dealing with adults who would do as they please, but he wanted to sneak that endorsement in. Otherwise, we'll have a little talk and discussion here before sext with lunch after, and later on we'll gather for a dinner after Vespers and our own evening prayer in the chapel loft following our Compline blessing. We'll head over there to get seated for tonight's Compline in just a few minutes, Father Ambrose explained. Noah wasn't quite inspired, but he felt intrigued. Noah always enjoyed new and different prayer experiences, but usually it took external forces to bring him to try them. It was significant that he had managed to commit himself to this and show up, and now that this heavy lifting of getting there was done, his curiosity could carry the day. Once his dinner plate was clean, Noah grabbed a glass of water. He returned to the table conversation, raising his eyebrows in polite listening as his tablemates shared about their wives and families. All apparently into their 30s or 40s, these men had marriages, children with stories from elementary and middle schools, and much to share about the families they were raising. Noah listened respectfully, but without genuine interest. He had Joan, his girlfriend. They had been dating for about a year. Noah had strong feelings for her, but wasn't quite ready to say I love you. They texted daily, talked semi-daily, and presumed every Friday and Saturday night would be spent together. But Noah was not planning to ask her to move in, much less to marry him, and he hadn't thought of engagement. To Noah, Joan was a sweet, kind, loving companion with whom he knew he could have fun, and who he could enjoy seeing very often. Noah, by some uncertain combination of passivity, laziness, apathy, or perhaps aversion to finding out, wasn't sure exactly how Joan felt about all that, and he also didn't know how serious she thought he and they really were. Noah told Joan he was going on a retreat for the weekend, and Joan calmly assented without much follow-up. Noah didn't mind getting away for a break from home life. He wasn't sure what Joan thought about his getting away for a break from home life. This wasn't an unusual dynamic for them, and Noah wasn't quite sure what to make of it. But for now it was time to leave the folding tables of their makeshift dining room to head across the street to evening prayer. Miles from the nearest town of any size, the abbey was tucked away on a quiet rural road. The glimmer of distant headlights would visually give away an oncoming car from quite a distance in the pitch-black country sky, the car's brights cutting through the deep darkness as the hum of the engine dominated the still air. There was a pair of four-sided caution lights, suspended from a drooping electrical wire, strung across weathered telephone poles on either side of the street. The only marker needed when a traffic light or stop sign in a place with zero traffic would have been overkill. The men calmly walked across the vacant and quiet street seeing each other's puffs of breath steam into the cold winter air. The five-minute walk down the narrow lane to the Abbey Chapel was a brisk invigorator after a good bit of sitting still for orientation. They pulled open and gently passed heavy wooden doors to cross over from the empty vastness of the rural air into a still-quiet but slightly busied hallow. A few folks, maybe locals or other spiritual travels, dotted the seating, except for a few rows. Father Ambrose led the way there, with the men quietly shuffling into these empty seats at the rear of the chapel. They were separated from the monks' choir area by a sparse low rail and gate. The incumbency of quiet led them to gingerly remove coats, open prayer books, and settle themselves in, but even these gentle motions felt cacophonous in the stark and dim chapel. As they looked forward into the choir stalls, it seemed like the monks almost glided in reverent silence even as they walked across hard stone floors and into their wooden stations, under the vaulted ceiling and towering walls. The simple chants began with a line Noah would come to know well during his visit to the abbey. O God, come to my assistance. The other visitors who didn't belong to their group joined in, almost by muscle memory. O Lord, make haste to help me, which Noah caught about four words too late. The intro continued. Praise the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and this time the Cistercian Academy alumni were ready to join, worship aids at the ready, both now and forever. Unfortunately, they didn't realize you bow at the waist for this part, but they caught on to that mid-motion too. And off the monks went into the chanted prayers of Compline. Father Ambrose had mentioned, and now Noah really understood, that you need to watch yourself or you'll end up singing too loudly and too slowly. Just because it's quiet didn't mean anyone needed to force the volume up. Just because it's chant doesn't mean it needs to be slow as molasses. When Noah felt his voice amping up or his pace slowing down, it was a good cue to tune in more closely to the monks. The habited men had an organic smoothness to their proper singing of the chants, having done it seven times a day for however long they'd been in the community. Noah was a bit more accustomed just to doing his thing with the old hymnal standards and familiar mass parts on Sunday mornings. Being in the seats at this monastic chapel invited him to listen more intentionally than that. Gradually, in the evening prayer, his pesky inner inertia calibrated such that his attunement came to happen with ease. The prayer service flew by pretty quickly, which gave way to a distinct ritual of Compline. One monk, from his place in the cloister, calmly approached the guest seating and lifted the latch of the gate to allow it to swing open. He gestured to those gathered there to come forward the monastery's abbot was waiting at the head of the aisle of choir stalls to offer an evening blessing. Noah and the others popped up and, in a way visually similar to the communion lines at Sunday Mass, joined a slow march further into the chapel. As people approached, the abbot silently nodded and moved his hand through a sign of the cross in the air just over each person's head. Many people bowed slightly. When he reached the front, Noah followed suit. He almost didn't notice the humble, white-cloaked and black-vested man blessing him, because he had reached the heart of the chapel and was too busy taking in the sights of the chapel. Replete with stony browns and grays, the chapel was an extension of the stark and sparse simplicity of the men whose prayers sustained it. Its tall ceilings invited the upward gaze, and its long corridor shape drew one's eyes to a simple metal tabernacle and its signature red-cylindered flame. Noah took it all in as he looped back out of the choir area, noticing the different ways the monks arranged their prayer books, pens, and papers in each of their areas. The other men from his group had grabbed their winter gear and continued past their previous seats to a staircase that headed up. Noah went with the flow and found the group reassembling in the lofted gallery, which sat just above where they had previously sat, overhanging the guest seating and bringing its occupants even a bit closer to the air that received the monk's steady chants. The men were spreading out a bit in the gallery pews, while Father Ambrose situated himself at the front, leaning back against the front wall as he watched his group settle. Now, past 8 p.m., the monks had retired to personal prayer and rest. Their departure left the chapel empty, silent, and lit only by dimmed ceiling lights and the steady flicker of a single red candle in the distance. Father Ambrose broke the silence with a gentle tone and robust but muted speech. Thank you, everyone, for coming here and joining in this experience. While we common observance monks don't live this daily life, there's something that feels so natural and welcome to my spirit in coming here. And it's such a gift that these Trappist men offer the church. I hope you got a chance to notice how easy prayer can be when you don't try to be too loud or too self-focused, when you instead listen to what's going on around you. Selfishly, I hope for this experience to be a springboard to re-engaging more with the academy. Generally, though, I just hope most of all that it's a way to renew and deepen your lives of prayer to learn to do a lot by doing much less, and or perhaps even by doing very little. That old monk can turn a phrase, Noah thought. Can someone be an old soul and not look or act old at all? I thought we could end each of our days here with a simple reflection and a meditation. The structure of prayer here immerses us in the Psalms, and I don't think much needs to be added. All I'd like to do is invite you into other treasured places in the scripture. So take this for whatever you will this evening, Father Ambrose offered. I invite you to enter into this last part with me however you are comfortable. Noah had found gentle peace at each step of the way since he stood up from the dinner table and he found it because he simply followed a trusted path through the wilderness into God's holy place following the simple habits of men who had set themselves apart for prayer. Why stop now, Noah thought. Father Ambrose began. Imagine, you are out in the wilderness. You are on a good-sized hill and as you look around in front of you, you can see down a bit from your high point. He took deliberate breaths at each comma. Gaps of quiet air spaced out each sentence. The monk was in no rush. Down to your right, there's an open clearing. The meadow is green with the life of the earth. You can see little creatures scurrying about. Rabbits are running. Squirrels are foraging. Creatures are moving through the lowlands of the wilderness. Before you is a winding river. Narrow and shallow, but flowing strongly with rushing water through the quiet of nature. The water splashes into rapids on a rocky outcropping off the coast of the river, and the white water makes a noticeable sound as it splashes past. Off to your left are some trees, enough to comprise a small forest. The branches and greenery reach high into the sky. You can see a worn trail weaving its way into the dark of the woods a path where the plants and grasses give way to the worn flat dirt paved by many footsteps. Shrubs and bushes dot the forest floor beneath the tall trees, and the evergreens make the air smell of fragrant pine. As you survey the landscape, you feel drawn to turn and continue onward and upward, to climb to greater heights. Turning from this scene to look behind you, before you now is a small mountain. The path to ascend is clear and walkable so you climb up. Weaving back and forth on the switchback trail, you slowly ascend to higher and higher heights. As you round a big bend, the trail has you facing the same landscape again. There before you, you can see the open meadow, the rushing river, and the quiet woods. Father Ambrose let this image breathe a bit, as he noticed that most of the men, including Noah, were sitting quite still with closed eyes. Charitably, he presumed that they all must be deep in prayer, but in his wisdom, he thought of confreres that can't help but drift to sleep for its peaceful adjacence to silent prayer, and assumed some of these young men had taken that path too. Nonetheless, his mood, tone, and delivery were unaffected. Ambrose was a pro. He steadily continued. Noah was right there with him. Starting to feel the fatigue in your legs, the mild exertion of the uphill climb, You look on the trail for a peaceful refuge. You also notice that rain clouds are gathering, and the graying sky appears a little ominous. Beside you is a shallow cave, whose alcove allows you to look out over the wilderness. So you step off the path and nestle yourself under the rocky overhang, where a flat slab of rock inside offers a seat with a temporary roof over your head. It serves as a comfortable, sheltered place to rest. You catch your breath. Your muscles begin to relax. Your body relishes the rest. Enjoying the quiet, you start to think of God and how he is with you. Just then the sky opens up and begins to pour rain down on the wilderness. As the rain falls, the river starts to rush harder. The water is ripping through the valley at a furious rate, and the rocky rapids are five times louder with the water racing now. You listen for God in the rush of the river, but God does not speak. Father Ambrose let that line breathe. Then he reset his rhythm and continued. The heavy clouds are thickening into the gray giants that bring storms. And as the rain falls hard, the sky rips out a giant crack of thunder. As the thunder rumbles in the distance and rolls closer over you, you listen for God in the roar of thunder but God does not speak. As the thunder rolls through, the sky is flashing brightly with lightning. You marvel as a bolt of electricity surges from cloud to cloud in the distance, lighting up the valley of wilderness. As you search the sky for another flash, your eyes catch a bolt as it crackles down toward the earth from cloud to ground. The bolt strikes a dried, branchy tree on the near end of the valley, and the branches ignite. The bits of leaves still on the limbs shrivel into flame, and the tree's branches start to burn. The wood crackles beneath the flame. The bright yellows and oranges of the burn illuminate the fresh darkness of the valley. You listen for God in the crackling fire, but God does not speak. The gray of the sky slowly but surely moves away to the east, and the rains recede with it. The fiery tree has been extinguished by the last of the downpouring rain. The thunder rolls into the distance until its sounds can be heard no more. The rushing river slows to its former pace. Before the birds come chirping to signal the end of the storm, there is a calm silence in the air. Father Ambrose said with slowed pace, really going one sentence at a time now. And in the palpable quiet that follows the storm, you lean forward from your alcove, out into the stark calm. And from your rocky perch on this mountainside, you listen for God once more. Father Ambrose intended to let this be the last words he said, knowing full well this is when, in the first book of Kings, God speaks to Elijah in a still, small voice in the silence. Father Ambrose leaned back slightly on the railing. He glanced back and forth across the two dozen men scattered throughout the gallery pews. Father Ambrose turned inward to offer his own prayers of gratitude for these exemplary Trappist monks and for these young men gathered before him. Meanwhile, Noah had walked the meditative road. He had watched the tumult from that mountain cave. He saw the storm recede. He felt the quiet both in his mind and in the monastery air. His body was as still as his spirit, as he imagined the calmed scene of that wilderness. Noah spiritually leaned into the rare air with a listening ear and heart. He inhaled the quiet, not expecting to hear anything, but nothing. Then a voice said to him, clear as that sky after the storm, What are you doing here? Noah jumped in his pew. His body's total rest spasmed into a lurch of his limbs and a twist of his neck as he looked quickly to his side. It was not unlike the physical actions when someone wakes up from a dream in which they are falling. Noah saw nothing but the vacant pew and the steadfast stone walls around him. A few nearby men glanced his way through the briefly interrupted quiet. Father Ambrose darted a gentle but furrowed look Noah's way. He must have dozed off, the monk thought. Oh well. Noah all but expected to see that someone had sat down close by in the pew beside him and started to talk. When he realized the row was as empty as it was when the meditation began, he turned to look forward again. His eyes focused past the grainy silhouettes of the men in his group and the gentle figure of his old headmaster in the foreground. All he saw, glimmering at the distant end of the chapel, was the single abiding light of the flickering red candle accompanying the tabernacle and the Blessed Sacrament. That's all for this episode. Remember, all the links for this book and my other writing is at my link tree, linktr.ee L-I-N-K-T-R slash danmasterton. That's linkt danmasterton. Thanks for listening, and I hope your gifts and passions are meeting the needs of the people and world around you. Instrumentals for this podcast were improvised and performed by Jason Pham.